0: Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, like Myra said, would love if if maybe you're new, we haven't met, would love to meet you afterwards over here after the service. Welcome to those of you online. Glad you can be with us today too and that uh, you're able to join us. So a man walks into a dentist's office. He says, excuse me, can you help me? I think I'm a moth. The dentist kind of looks at him. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm a moth. Can you help me? He's like, man, you, you don't need a dentist. You need a psychiatrist. And the man says, yeah, I know. And the dentist says, so why are you here? He says, well, the light was on. <laughs> Wait for it. You'll get it. You know, the, the way you think, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about God determines an awful lot about the way you live. In fact, God's given you and I a ton of power just in our minds, uh, in our thoughts, our, our inward self, our inward being, and how you and I think and what we think about particularly about God and about uh, ourselves has a profound impact in how we live our lives. Uh, Even uh, our inner discourse, your inner discourse, do you know what I mean by that? I mean like kind of the ongoing dialogue that happens inside your head, the things you tell yourself about yourself, the things you tell yourself about life, about the things going on around you, that's been demonstrated over and over to have a profound impact on our actions and on how we live and even the things that happen in fact the Bible recognizes that on a number of occasions including today's passage that, that how we think often sets the stage for how we're gonna live so with that let me pray we're gonna be in first Peter chapter 4 today and uh, so you can turn there if you want, but let me pray and then we'll dive into that passage together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, in him we have hope. In him uh, we can live, Jesus, for you. We can put our, our sin to death. We can leave uh, the sin of our past behind. And Jesus, we can, we can live in light of your grace and live the lives that, that you call us to that are full of joy and of hope. <sighs> Holy Spirit, would you teach me, even as I teach today, speak through me, let my words be your own. Uh, Challenge us, change us, that we would, that we'd put those things away, Jesus, and that we would uh, arm ourselves with the same thinking that Jesus, you had when you lived your life on this earth so that we could obey you and honor you and live a life full of joy according to your will. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, let me just read through our whole passage together this morning, and then we'll come back and unpack it. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, this is what Peter writes. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of time, the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that's past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when, when you don't join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they mock you. But they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So word of the Lord. And, and in this word, Peter starts off right away, and you know what he says? He says, get your head on straight. Get your head on straight because the way that you think and what you think about and how you think about it is going to result in some certain actions in your life. Look at what he says here in verse one. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Uh, By the way, when he says that, since therefore, Again, you see therefore in your Bible, what's it there for? He's pointing back to what he said in chapter 3 a couple weeks ago in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. He died physically, but he rose again and, and rose to new life, never to die again. And that's the same way that he's going to raise each of us who've trusted him. So Peter says, since Jesus suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. To think like Jesus is what he's saying. Think like him. Arm yourself with that same way of thinking. Why? Well, because the reason Jesus was able to be obedient even to the point of death on the cross and suffered in the flesh for you and for me is because he had set his mind toward what was coming. And we're to think like him. Paul tells us the same thing in, in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Well, which mind, Paul? Well, uh, it's yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Think like him. In Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By the way, when it says he emptied himself, that doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. It simply means that he lived his life fully out of his humanity. So that he could be a perfect substitute for us, he could be a perfect example for us. In other words, he never pulled out his God card, he lived according to the spirit. And he emptied himself, though he was God, he emptied himself and lived a life of a servant. being born in the likeness of men. He's God who became man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter says, uh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Paul says, have this mind. Well, you see Jesus' mind in in Luke 22, verse 42, when when he's about to die on the cross that evening and he's praying in the garden and he he says, Father, uh, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass, but not my will, but what, your will be done. And I already mentioned, uh, or alluded to Hebrews chapter 12, where in verse 2, we're told to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He had his mind on the joy that was before him, and it enabled him to endure the cross. In other words, this mindset that Jesus had to arm ourselves, to kind of gird ourselves up for battle with the same way of thinking... Jesus realized, and we ought to as well, that it's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. Uh, habits will help you do this, by the way. Uh, hiding God's word in your heart that I might not, what? The psalmist writes, sin against you. You. Go to walwasybible.com slash habits, start memorizing God's word, putting it in your heart so that it would you'd you'd arm your mind with the same way of thinking as Jesus. Notice this again uh, in verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, uh, when we read God's word, it's always important to put it in context. Um, but let me ask you a question have have you suffered have any of you suffered physically anybody suffered yeah like everyone's hand ought to be going up right we've we've all suffered every one of us have okay well then uh, according to what peter says here uh have you quit sinning nobody's hands are going up (laughs) yeah no so what does peter mean when he says this whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin Well, surely it can't mean that just by suffering physically, all of a sudden we quit sinning. Um, In fact, the the opposite seems to be true for a lot of people that when they suffer physically, sometimes it can result in more sin when their hearts become embittered toward God, they become resentful of a situation, of things happening. And sometimes suffering can actually lead to more sin. So so again, what is Peter talking about? he surely isn't saying that uh, just suffering for suffering's sake cures you of sin. Well, you have to read it in context. He's writing a whole letter, right? We're just taking bits and pieces of it at a time. And, and back in chapter, chapter 3, Peter wrote this, and this is the suffering he's talking about. It's, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this is the mindset that Jesus had. This is the type of thinking we've got to arm ourselves with, that it's better to suffer than it is to sin. Even if my obedience means that at times I'm going to suffer for my faith to varying degrees, that, that's better than giving in to sin. And I have to arm myself with that type of thinking because the, the way I think it's reflected out in the way I live my life. I mean would you agree with that Uh, have you had times and seasons in your life I have where where I haven't armed myself in my thinking with God's word and then it comes out in the way I live maybe uh, in various ways and and I'm not obedient to the degree I ought to be and I do sin and my thinking then results in how I live and But then when I I find, uh, when I do fill myself with God's word, and I do arm myself with that type of thinking, that I'm able to even endure suffering for obedience sake. Because I see that better than sin. I see it as greater than the pleasure, the fleeting pleasure of sin. So when, when... Peter writes this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What he's saying is that um, if you've suffered for the sake of obedience, then you've you've said, uh, Jesus is more important to me than that sin. That hardship is worth enduring rather than avoiding if it means obedience. That's that's what he's saying. It's... You're growing because of that. Whoever suffered for doing right has has gone on obeying God no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so why should I arm myself with this way of thinking? Well, Peter answers us in verse two. He says, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Not to suffer, or not to sin, but to be willing to suffer if it means obeying the will of God. See, Peter's saying, get your head on straight, think rightly, arm yourself with the right way of thinking so that you can live for God. Get your head on straight and live for Jesus Christ. That's Peter's exhortation here. So as to live the rest of time in the flesh, the rest of your earthly life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Notice he says no longer, implying that there was a time when we lived for those things. And there's even a struggle where at times, if we're not arming ourselves with that right way of thinking, we still struggle with those things. And then he goes on to list some of these things. He says, for the time is past." The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. When Peter refers to Gentiles here, he's referring uh, not just to people who aren't Jewish, but, but ultimately he's using this in the sense of, and he does it other places in his in his letter, of people who haven't trusted Christ, of pagans, of people who, who are not Christians. He says the time is past, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists Uh, some of these sins, he says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, then they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. See, Peter tells us first to, to, to think like Jesus, and now he tells us to live like him, to live for the will of God. Why shouldn't we follow our human passions and the things of our past well because we've done enough of that what we've done in the past is enough we need to put it in the rearview mirror and be done with it Uh, peter says in in first peter chapter one earlier in our text in this series as obedient children don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance of the things in the rearview mirror don't don't go back to that Philippians 2, therefore, my loved ones, uh, beloved, if, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live it out, live for the will of God. Work it out, even if it means suffering. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and John writes this in one of his letters. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know him, that we've come to know Jesus. How do we know? Well, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. It, it, We're to live for Jesus, to live for the will of God, no longer uh, according to our our former ignorance and former passions, but for the will of God. And that's why Peter lists some of these sins that he's particularly concerned about in verse three. And, And they all relate in some way, shape or form to sexual immorality and to drunkenness. Sex, drugs and rock and roll. Nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, 2,000 years ago he wrote this. And it's the same things. He he talks about sensuality, first of all. Or your translation might say licentiousness. It's living without any regard for moral restraint, especially in giving yourself over to acts of sexual immorality, or it can also refer to physical violence. He, He lists passions next in that list. Sinful human desires that exert this strong influence on your behavior. Again, that's why you need to replace those passions and that way of thinking, arm your thinking so that Jesus gives you new passions in your heart and you live for those. And they exert influence over your behavior. Drunkenness, another one that's characteristic of just being bent on following physical desires. As our orgies, drinking parties, the expression lawless idolatry, he says in verse three. And really, uh, in in Greek, that's plural. So it's lawless idolatries. Now, uh, what's he talking about there? Well, is he talking about like the law as it relates to the Old Testament? Well, probably not, because any idolatry is against the law in the Old Testament. They wouldn't need to classify it as lawless. It's more likely Peter's really talking here about uh, things that are against civil laws, implying evil kinds of idol worship or, or things of that day, anything uh, that results in immorality or enticing to that, that's even forbidden by the laws of our government. And that would line up completely with what he said earlier back in uh, chapter two about obeying the authorities and earthly rulers. But, but ultimately, each of the sins that Peter lists here, uh, they demonstrate a lack of self-control of a fruit of the spirit that we're to live by and to be controlled by. And you know what's also curious is that the things he lists at their core, in this case sex and alcohol, are not necessarily in and of themselves bad things. In fact, they're good things, right? They're things that God gave us to be used in a way that, that he ordained. But the problem is that when they get corrupted by sin, they can become a bad thing. And when that happens, each of them really, we're using those things, those good things, to numb something deeper, to numb a deeper pain within us that ultimately only the gospel of Jesus Christ can quench and can satisfy. See, the, the good thing that God gives, when it becomes a God thing or something we worship or it's used in a sinful way, it becomes a deadly thing. Let me say that again. When the good thing becomes a God thing, it's a deadly thing. And really, you could, you could mix anything into this. Um, I mean, the things Peter lists, sex, it's a good thing. For a married man and a married woman in the confines of marriage and, and, and when, when it takes place outside of those confines and it becomes a God thing or it's in a sinful way, it becomes a deadly thing. Or alcohol, there's nothing inherently wrong with alcohol. Jesus drank wine, he made wine. Paul told Timothy in one of his letters to drink some wine for the sake of his stomach. But when when alcohol gets used uh, in a way that God didn't intend for it to be used and it becomes controlling of us, and we become drunk and even addicted to these things, then that good thing becomes a God thing, an idol, and that's a deadly thing for us. And for some, in, in, in any of these cases, like if, if, if that's a sin you struggled with where that good thing has become a God thing, then it's best for you to totally avoid that good thing probably so that you wouldn't go down that same deadly thing road again. But these aren't the only things. How about other good things God gives us? What about food? Food's a good thing. I like to eat. How about you? But sometimes food can be used in the same way, to mask something going on internally, to mask a deeper hurt, and that good thing can become a God thing, and it can be used in a sinful way, and I can overeat, and uh, it becomes a deadly thing. Or uh, how about anger? Anger's a good thing. God calls us to be angry about certain things, but always in the way that He's angry, with patience. And so, when my anger becomes something that becomes an idol, that I becomes a god thing, it becomes a deadly thing, both for me and for those around me. How about control or power or responsibility? All those can fit in there too, right? It's good to have self-control. We're commanded to. It's good to be given responsibility. It's even good when we're blessed with a measure of power. But when we take those things to an extreme and that good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a deadly thing again, not only for us, but for all those around us. Do you see? And we could take any good thing and put it in there. We could put our kids, we could put our, our spouse, we could put our home, we could put our career. Any of those good things can become a God thing and it becomes a deadly thing to my heart and to my life. Well, I like what Peter says here in verse 3. It's a pretty great opening when he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. It's almost as if Peter barks out, Enough! That's enough! Be done with that! Put it in the rearview mirror. As Paul would write, You're dead to that if you're a follower of Jesus. You've had enough time to mess around with that. Be done. And follow Christ. And then he lists the sorts of things that were to put away. Right? Be done. Enough. The past is sufficient. Uh, and and too often, um, some of the things he lists as far as sexuality and drunkenness or addiction, those are things that maybe. Uh, uh, but what about the things you watch on TV? What about the time you spend online? What about fill in the blank? Those things creep into your thoughts and begins to affect the way that you live. For men especially, but not just men, men and women, sensuality, sex is the elephant in the room in our culture. And it's a good thing God's given us, but to be used in the way that He called it to be used, called for it to be used. And to not do that, we're, we're to put it away. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he tells a parable about just some of the disastrous effects of not putting away our sin and killing it and being done with it and putting our past in the past. Here's what he writes. He says, One springtime, a duck was flying with his friends northward across Europe. During the flight, he came down in a barnyard where there were some tame ducks. He enjoyed some of their corn, He stayed for an hour and then for a day, and one week passed, and before he knew it, a month had gone by. He loved the good food, so he stayed all summer long. And one autumn day, when the same wild ducks were winging their way south again, they passed overhead, and the duck on the ground heard their cries, and he was filled with this strange thrill and joy, and he desired just to take off and fly with them again, but With great flapping of his wings, he took off and he rose and he could only get as high as the eaves of the barn before falling back down. So uh, he still, though, found that he had new good fare and uh, so he dropped back into the barnyard again and said, my life's safe here, the food's good. Every spring and autumn, though, when he heard the wild ducks honking, his eyes would gleam for a moment. And he would begin flapping his wings, but finally the day came when when the wild ducks flew overhead and he didn't even hear them. And he became numb to what he truly was. And and, and friends, if, if, if we persist in our sin, if we don't put it in the past like Peter tells us to, to kill it like Paul tells us to, eventually that sort of thinking we become numb to who God has called us and made us to truly be and life becomes numb and we begin to fill it with everything else other than Jesus but you're called to so much more you need to put those things to death and put it away and be done with it the truth is we've we've feasted far too long on just kind of the pleasant fare the world has to offer and we've taken the good things that God has given us, we've made them God things, and it's become deadly. Uh, C.S. Lewis struggled with this in a sense to just grasp the gravity of his own sin. he, He wrote about this on the subject. He said, indeed, the only way in which I can make real to myself what theology teaches about the heinousness of sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us, an energy which, if, if not distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts where if God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. But we poison the wine as he decants it into us. We murder a melody that he would long to play with us as the instrument. We, we caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, whatever else it is, is sacrilege. Friends, set your mind, get your head on straight and live for the will of God. And and in this area, God has, has plans for your body, for mine, plans that are for purity and for good. Don't cheapen it. Don't settle for distortion. Don't poison the wine that God decants into you as Lewis wrote. And if you found yourself there and you have sinned, turn back. Jesus waits with open arms for you to return. You don't have to stay in the barnyard with all the tame ducks, you can fly again, right? Jesus will heal you, he does that. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, brothers and sisters, God's shown you his mercy, so I'm asking you to offer up your bodies to him while you're still alive. Your bodies are a holy sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And when you offer your bodies to God, you're worshiping him. So don't live any longer the way this world lives. Let your thinking be completely changed. Then you'll be able to test what God wants for you and you will agree that what he wants is right. For his plan is good and pleasing and perfect. But you know, as you do this, as you arm yourself with that way of thinking and as you uh, live for the will of God, the reality is some people will not understand you. They just won't. In fact, as Peter writes, they'll, they'll actually be surprised when you don't join with them in those former sins. When you don't join with them in whatever that might be, maybe it's the, the talk at work, certain jokes, or watching certain things, going to certain events, And then they'll malign you, Peter says. They'll speak evil of you. The reality is uh, they just don't understand you. Why, why does this happen? Well, uh, part of it I think is because not participating in those things of who we were is taken, that, that lack of participation is taken as a condemnation for those things, which it is. And so to defend themselves, to feel better about what they're doing, they have to lash out at you. And you've experienced this, haven't you, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time? Some people just won't understand you, but the good news is Jesus does. In fact, uh, here's what he says in John chapter 15. He says, uh, does the world hate you? Just remember it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it it would love love you like one of its own, but you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. That's why, as, as Peter would say, people at times will malign you. But remember, it's better to suffer even that verbal abuse than it is to join them in sin. Remember the words I spoke to you, Jesus said. He said, I said that a servant is not more important than his master. If people hated me and tried to hurt me, then they'll do the same to you. They'll treat you like that because of my name. They don't know the one who sent me. So get your head on straight so that when those things come, you can live for the will of God and truly like Jesus say, you know what, it's, it's better even to suffer than to sin. And you, you can put away those things from the past. You can turn from them and turn to Jesus. And the reality is, he says, they will malign you, but but judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's coming for those who malign you, but friends, it's also coming for us to a degree as well. Uh, They will malign you, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Tell me, who is that? Who's the one who's to judge the living and the dead there in verse five? Sunday school answer, not too hard. Jesus yeah when Sunday school you know you don 't know the answer, you just say "Jesus, and you get it right. Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead It, it, it implies death isn 't um, an escape from judgment that, but that all people will consciously stand before Jesus Christ one day. In, in fact, when Peter writes this, this is the church is very young in these days it 's only Uh, a few decades after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so uh, they're expecting him to be back any day. And so when uh, when they don't, uh, they don't see that happen and people, if Christians actually die, uh, they're like, well, what's going on then? Why did they, why did they die? And, And Peter says, well, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So that even though they suffered and died, that today, now they still live with Christ. Friends, the reality is all of us one day will answer to Jesus Christ. Everyone will. We read it earlier from Philippians chapter two, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul writes in Romans 14, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Acts 10, 42, Jesus commanded us, the apostle said to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. That's the language Peter uses here. Jesus tells us, I tell you, on the day of judgment, everyone will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's a terrifying verse. Isn't it? I mean, I've said a lot of careless things. How about you? And we'll give an account for those things. But maybe you're thinking, oh, come on, Josh, judgment? It's been like 2,000 years now. Are you sure about that? Are you sure that's really going to happen? I mean, Why hasn't he been back yet? Well, Peter addresses this in his second letter. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some might count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all should turn. See, God's being patient. Judgment, friends, it is coming. It is. And it could at any moment for all of us. But God's desire is that we turn to him, that we'd repent. That's what repentance means, to turn. He's not being slow. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't forgotten. He's being kind. In fact, that's what Paul writes to the church in Rome. He said this, uh, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Friends, even if you find yourself struggling maybe even with some of those sins Peter listed or, or others, turn to him. Come back to him. He's being kind. and don't, don't, Can't you see his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins, to lead you to repentance. He longs for you to turn back to him or to turn to him for the first time if you haven't. Let, let me close with this. The reality is that every one of us, you and I, will experience birth and death a total of three times. You will experience birth and death a total of three times. And some of you are giving me, you know, the different strokes look. What are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> right? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, let me see if I can explain. Every person, everyone's life begins. You're born physically, right? If you're in this room, you were born physically. The other reality is that everyone in this room, everybody hearing my voice, uh, you're going to die physically. One in one, pretty good odds. You and I, unless Jesus returns, are going to die. But you and I and every person on the face of the planet throughout all time gets the choice of which one they're going to experience a second time. Jesus said this to a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and uh, he says this in John chapter three. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was one of the Jewish rulers, John writes. And he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. We know that God's with you. If you weren't, you, you couldn't do the miraculous signs you're doing. And then Jesus replied to him. He said, what, what I'm about to tell you is true. No one can see God's kingdom Jesus said without being born again. So he tells Nicodemus, listen, you were born once, you're gonna die. If you wanna see my kingdom, you have to be born a second time. That needs to be the thing you choose. And Nicodemus uh, is just confused by this. He's like, what are you talking about? I, how am, I, am I supposed to crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born again? What, what does this mean? And, and what it means is that to be born again is to trust Jesus Christ, to turn to him in faith. And then he gives you new life, a brand new life, and you're born again, spiritually. You're born again. And one day he's gonna make you completely new when he returns. And if that happens to you, then you'll still die physically, but since you were born twice, you'll only die once. Uh, Same thing, uh, Jesus says this to uh, Martha, when her brother and Jesus' friend, Lazarus, dies in John chapter 11. Uh, Lazarus has been dead for a few days and then Jesus comes finally to the tomb and look what he said, look what happens. As, As soon as Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. She ran out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. He'll he'll rise again, and and Martha says maybe what you and I might say, you know, if we were at a funeral and someone had died, yeah, and I know he'll rise again on the last day. I I know that that'll happen at that resurrection. But Jesus actually meant, no, he he was gonna bring him to life that day again, but he uses this as a teaching moment. And uh, he actually goes on to to say to her, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me, who lives physically but puts their hope in me and lives spiritually will never die spiritually. See, uh, Paul talks a lot about the resurrection in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, he actually wraps up this whole discussion on the resurrection by quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Have you ever been stung by a bee? Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? I've only been stung once, but I hope I never am again. I know I'm a wuss, only once, and I still don't ever want to experience it again. But tell me, uh, that same bee, how many more times can he sting you? Just once. He might buzz around and annoy you the rest of the day, but he can't sting you again. His power's gone. In a sense, uh, if you've trusted Christ and you've become a Christian, death can only sting you once because you've been born twice. It can only sting you once. And now that bee that's buzzing around you is harmless, a nuisance to be sure, coming to be sure, but ultimately harmless can only get you once. Paul goes on to say that the sting of death is sin, that the true sting of death is the penalty for sin, suffering under God's wrath, under Jesus' wrath for sin. But the good news is, friends, that Jesus took the stabbing. He took that stinger. He experienced that second death, that spiritual death for you, experiencing God's wrath for sin for me. And if you trust him, you can choose to be born again, never to die spiritually. See, ultimately what Jesus is saying here, and the reason I bring this up is because Peter says judgment is coming, but if you're born twice, you'll only die once physically, if you're born physically and spiritually. But if you're only born once, only born physically, you'll die twice, both physically and spiritually. Paying the penalty for your sin in hell. Suffering under Jesus' right wrath for sin. Everyone's life begins, everyone dies, you get to choose what you'll do a second time. Now why in the world do I bring that up at the end of this message? Well, one, because Peter says uh, judgment is coming and that that is why the gospel is preached. That's why. And so arm yourselves with the same thinking Jesus had, which is this, that if it's better to suffer than to sin. And even uh, if, I, if I'm gonna face physical death, if I've put my faith and trust in Christ, I can now live for him. I can put away all of my sin, all of my, my, my former sin, all of the things that, that I tried, that, that I searched for that didn't fulfill me, and I can trust Christ to be fulfilled. That's the gospel. If you've never trusted Christ, man, be born again. Trust Him. Today's the day of salvation, the day you can trust Him and be made new. If you have trusted Him, I mean, you need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus so that you would live for Him. Because you you won't necessarily be judged in terms of, well, you make it to be with Him forever, but there will be great regret for our sin and we will be judged even for every careless word we speak, Jesus says. He longs for you to come to him with arms open wide. He loves you more than you ever dreamt you were loved. Let me pray.